Hey there. I appreciate you listening to this episode of Bandwidth Coast to Coast. I want these messages before the interviews to be a bit of a cocktail. The largest portion is to make something worth paying attention to, but also helps guide what you're going to take away from the dialogue. I also want it to serve as a marker for the interview. What's the theme I took out of it, and how does this fit with everything else on the series? On this episode, there's a lot I'm still thinking about. From riffing with a generational great historian about definitions of truth, another hill to view culture from, or more questions about Western culture and history. History and culture. How do you view those two things in your mind? Culture is near everything, explains nearly everything, and is one of the hardest things to explain, understand, or see, or even live on past the moment it exists in. When we think of a previous time, or look left and right at our own time, or even in our own lives, consider the culture within. What's been encouraged, allowed, discouraged, ignored, shamed, and what emerges out of that, and any other factors. If what you're viewing isn't, as in the words of my guest, problematic, it isn't likely true, or you're not on a path towards the unattainable ideal. Given the day in which this episode is being posted, November 3rd, 2020, Election Day, I want to give another thought. My guest in this episode presented me with an idea that I hadn't put much all that thought into before. It's so simple and so useful, I now see it in every troll, disregarding your mark, Twitter bots, and easily spotted in network pundits. And it's this. It is much easier for bad ideas to be influential than it is for good ones. Good ideas are likely recognition of the circumstances in which they exist. Complicated, conflicting, no real solution, but only steps towards a better place. Where bad ideas are typically simple, straightforward, and a gross dilution of the reality in which they exist. As such, they are much easier to package up and catch fire without ever losing their intended message. In a time when everyone is certain they are right, and complicated thought has seemingly left the room in favor of emotion, recognizing the influence of bad ideas could hardly ever be more valuable. Felipe Fernandez Armesto, my guest today, is one of the most authored in volume, width, and breadth historian of our time. If you're going off Goodreads, Felipe has 99 distinct works to his name. And I encourage you to check them out, especially Amerigo, the man who gave his name to America, and Truth, a history and guide for the perplexed. In our discussion, we talk about the paradox of truth, comfort being the enemy of well-being, the wonders of imagination, if Europe really is its own continent or just a plateau out of Asia, and a question you can use to escape out of chit-chat. It was my delight to speak with Felipe, and I'm very excited to share this with you. I hope this sparks some thought and delight. One quick note before the episode begins. Right as we were coming up to time, someone came knocking at my door with a delivery, and, well, my dog didn't take too kindly to how they were knocking. As a result, we ended up pausing the conversation right where we were, as we were coming up to time anyways. It was a human moment. It was a human moment and call back to the cultural conversation we started with in relation to my dog, and I found it humorous, so I decided to keep it in. Real quick before the episode starts, if you'd like to find us on your social media platform of choice, sign up for a mailing list to be the first to know about episode drops, know about upcoming guests or opportunities to ask questions and provide suggestions, please visit us at bandwidthpodcast.com. And of course, if you like what you hear, 
Please follow, comment, or subscribe to the pod, however it is that this is getting to your ears. Thank you for listening, and cue the ocean. Well, thank you, thank you again very much for uh, taking the time. If you wouldn't mind, just so that I had it, just to quickly introduce yourself. I'm called Felipe Fernandez Armesto, and um, I, 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 I try to teach at Notre Dame. Awesome. So uh, I'm starting to, I've been interviewing a lot of people for this podcast and something I'm, I'm going to try to do is a, kind of a primer to each of the individuals I talk with as I'm going to ask the same question. And the question I want to ask you is, uh, what do you do that makes you happy? Oh, nothing. No, I, I'm, I'm genitally <laughs> incapable of, of happiness. Indeed, I, I think happiness is an almost unattainable state. I define it as a dynamic condition in which, you know, your, your spirit is soaring and uh, in, in, in which, you, which you can distinguish from bovine contentment, which is a kind of static state. And I'm afraid, you know, when the founding fathers spoke about the pursuit of happiness, they probably didn't mean the same, same thing that I, I mean um, when I when I talk about it. But I suppose the thing, I mean, the, the, the question really is what makes one feel um, that unhappiness is bearable, <laughs> you know? And I, I guess in my case, it's, um, you know, it's, it's the very obvious, obvious things. My, my wife, my children, my dogs, and my God. I, I really appreciate that answer. Usually, I've, I've, I've used that as like a way of uh, getting to know people in any of these random situations that one finds himself in from having to share a rather close seat on an airplane all the way through business endeavors. And I have to say that is probably the most, the closest congruency to the answer that I would give is that there is no such thing as happiness. Uh, <laughs> and that oh, well, I, I, I'm distressed to know that somebody agrees with me, John, <laughs> means I'll have to change my mind. I'm very glad I haven't sat next to you on an airplane. You sound like a very difficult traveling companion. Oh, it's usually just a question that I bring upon when somebody has that awkwardness where they're trying to start a conversation with you and it's just very banal and doesn't go anywhere. I'll, uh, I'll throw that in there just to kind of find some way out of the monotony of chit chat and dive into kind of the more of the existence of what existence is, right? So I try to well, use it as a, an escape rope. Yeah, certainly makes a change from, do you think the plane will be on time? Or maybe <laughs> I should have chosen the prawns as well. Yes. Or are you from here? Sorry, from... Oh, like on an airplane. Usually people are asking you if oh, you're yes. from the city oh, yes, that you're yes, at. Or yes, yes, the that's city right. Yes, yes, yeah. well, yes. Are you going... Do you live at the de place of destination, which is probably it's very interesting statistically to know how often a true answer to that question is yes, because I suppose that hmm. um, typically 50% of journeys are journeys home, but, but I, I might be wrong about that. Yeah, I would imagine some of the logistics of air travel probably come into play, right? Like if you're in a major hub like Atlanta or Chicago, probably maybe the the demand the, the the likelihood changes a bit. Um, oh, but that's true. Yes, of course, in the United States, and uh, no one is ever going to his his or her final destination. There are always change changes and corresponding flights. What do you call them? Um, connecting flights. Um, 
Negative effects, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's an unfortunate thing. Um, and now that I live in a smaller city than Chicago, where I'm from, I've uh, become all too akin of the fact that, uh, oh, wow, connecting flights are a thing, and I hate them. <laughs> but, oh, I see. Uh, so that background of those trees in the background, is that the sort of environment that you actually live in? Because it looks like a, you know, sort of virtual environment. Oh, it, yeah, no, it's, a virtu- it's just a virtual environment so that uh, my dog and, and wife don't have to be uh, on screen. But uh, I wish that I lived in a more... Uh, forested uh with some aurora aurora borealis as it's kind of playing in the background uh but no i live in southern california i live in san diego oh i see yes all right which is so i have so many notes to go to try to go through here and i'm trying to contain my excitement and i'm trying to contain uh what we have time to talk about uh among the litany of work like i i it's rare to find an individual that has such a depth or breadth breadth of history as you. Um, And then to to kind of extract out of that as well, the the way in which that you look at history is one that I have a a very fond appreciation for. Um, I I got aware of your, your work actually from a close friend of mine who's read you quite extensively. Um, And and most conversations we kept bringing up, like your, your name and your work kind of kept coming into it, which is kind of the, the inception of, of why I asked to, to talk with you. Um, so, so one of the oh, things... I see. Well, I, I, well I, I apologize both to your friend and to you. <laughs> your your uh, self-deprecating humor is, is definitely finding some uh, delight in me right now. So thank you. Uh, wh- what, I, there's so many places I want to start, but I'm going to start really broadly and just ask you, in any study of history or moments in any point, if it's we're studying in our own moment, reflecting on our own moment, reflecting on our own existence, as we so delightfully did with the happiness question. Um, what, I'm, what I want to ask is, is there any more important dimensionality to understand than culture? Well, I, I mean, I suppose, um, uh, you know, that the metaphysicians would say that, um, in as far as you can distinguish what we think about the 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 invisible and unattainable, unreachable world, and as far as you can distinguish that from culture, I guess a metaphysician would say metaphysics, and I guess that a scientist would say the same. If you can distinguish science from culture, really both of these things are part of culture, right. inescapably influenced by the cultural context and you know what people think about other worlds or about the observed world changes with the cultural context but you know, as far as you can distinguish and i suppose a metaphysician would say metaphysics and a scientist would say would say science but um uh, you know as a um um in, in my profession as i'm and i'll try to be an historian. I, I study a culture. I mean, that's the context in which I see, um, I see everything. I mean, I see everything uh, in terms of how it relates to our behavior. That's to say the behavior of me and my fellow human beings, and that also includes mental behavior. So kind of, to me, everything is, is cultural, at least culture is my frame of reference for um, thinking about everything. I, I like that. And I, I intentionally asked that question to just kind of reframe infinite with that for anyone who is listening, what a historian is. Because I think, especially in America, a lot of our education kind of brings us up as historians are the fact finders, right? 
when the reality is that, and at least, and correct me, please check my, my uh, definition here, but historians are the, the, the more culture seekers and then through that culture seeking, understanding the facts as they were recorded and then constantly checking everything based off of that, or at least taking everything from a cultural context first and then working your way back and everything else. Yes, I, I mean, to me, history is a problematic discipline. I mean, I don't see it as a, being about objective facts. I, indeed, I'm not terribly interested in those, except in as much as they can throw light on what was going on in the minds of people who misrepresented them. But, you know, I'm interested in what's going on in the, the minds of the people who've left us historical sources. So, for me, there really aren't any historical facts, except facts about the sources. So, so, I mean, I don't say the Battle of Hastings is in 1066. I say, you know, some people who were there at the time observed this phenomenon. Um, and that's what's interesting um, uh, to me. You know, people notice some things and not others. They record some things and not others. And I'm interested in why, why they, they record the things they 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 record and when i say record i mean obviously i mean that in the very broadest sense i also mean you know why have people left to certain material artifacts certain archaeological bric-a-brac certain detritus um certain scars on the the landscape uh, as well as why have they left to certain written documents though obviously my my principal object of study like that of all historians is the written documents because you know the way history is developed the history of history as a discipline it has been you know very much that it's developed within the humanistic tradition and it's been it's always been focused on on text but but like other historians i've i've tended to interpret what we mean by text ever more broadly i i i love that context and uh as another way of packaging it i would almost say that when reading history one has to be aware of the dangers of narrative Right. So like for myself, um, I for, I'm extremely into the Roman Empire um, and ancient histories and, and macroly as well as the colonial uh, kind of Columbus on more Renaissance on which I would love to get into you, with you in a little bit. But one of the things that I learned from reading a lot of the criticisms of Gibbon's rise and fall of the Roman Empire is how much it's a narrative driven text and coming from somebody who was in the American education system not having narrative as a way of forming history, but as a way of forming history in this kind of continuum of constantly ever learning, ever understanding, ever reframing, ever uh, trying to juxtapose, not, not juxtaposing what happened then with what your lens is now, but trying to understand, like what you said, what were, what were people at the Battle of Hastings experiencing as opposed to saying what was the Battle of Hastings' importance versus in the broader context of things as some kind of link in a chain when really it's a type of continuum of ever spinning things that may jut off into dead ends or may in some way uh, affect the course of, of events following. Well, of course, you're right. Gibbon does tell a story, and for him that's a kind of technique or a, a method. But I don't see him as um, someone who's primarily interested in constructing narrative. I think, on the contrary, that he really was someone who was very interested in in problems. Indeed, he rather despised historians whom he called pyronists, who, you know, who are really only interested in the 
um, in the objective facts and who tended to overvalue, therefore, sort of material evidence. And, and Gibbon was obviously, you know, he was a humanist. He was a textual historian. And I think what drove him, I mean, you know, tell me if you think this is, this is wrong, the way I read him. And of course, I did edit four volumes of Gibbon for the Folio Society one. Uh, so the way I, may I, have, I may have asked that or might drop that intentionally. Yes, well, I just, it's just that um, uh, I'm very intellectually indisciplined and there's always nothing that I haven't you know, sort of worked on. Yeah, but but, but, but uh, I, as I did work on, on Gibbon at one time, and, and my way of reading him is that he was really driven by um, the problem of his own time, which was that he was convinced that progress was the shape of history, that... that, um, that that if there was a, a single thread, you know, that you could detect in the whole of the past, it was a progressive thread. But on the other hand, he was very aware that there were um, there were kind of moments when this thread seemed to get broken or knotted. After all, he was writing the to climb the fall of the Roman Empire during the American Revolution. Said so he was very aware of the the what at the time looked like an existential threat to the British um, Empire uh, and you know other 18th century philosophers and historians had addressed the problem of the decline of the Roman Empire in a, in a similar spirit in a way given was following Montesquieu's lead in asking you know well does this phenomenon of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire really represent a reversal of progress, a reversal of what we think of as the normal um, direction of, of history. So that was really what he was trying to do. He was trying to explain to himself what looked like a very anomalous case in the history of, um, of progress. And uh, I mean, I don't think he he came up with a very, very convincing solution, but nonetheless, he wrote the most most brilliant book on the, the subject really ever written. <laughs> because, you know, the historians have now come up with a lot of data that weren't available to, uh, to Gibbon and say, I think they, when Sapp says they've improved on what Gibbon wrote, but I bet you, you know, I'm going to make a bet with you and this is a safe bet because neither of us will be alive to judge whether I've won it or not. Can I bet you that no, no current historian of the Roman Empire will still be read in 200 years or 250 years the way Gibbon is still read today. Oh, I, I definitely agree with you on there. And, and I mean, even just the catalog of sources that he provides you and even like the brief introduction of certain things and concepts or, and all of that, I, it's incredibly useful. Gibbon's incredibly useful. I, there's no doubt in that. Um, and I, yeah, I think you flipped my perspective a little bit on how much I should probably be considering the, the time at which Gibbon lived a little bit further. Um, I think I just, I, some of his assertions he makes towards the end of just Christianity's role, I think is uh, a bit of a stretch, um, as well as some of the ways that he t takes a certain choice of sources to use as a narrative framing. But I think you're right. I think he probably did that as a means of hurrying his own thought process along in some way of, of not getting caught too much in the pitfalls of what ifs or different interpretations and, and whatnot. Uh, but I mean, I, th I think it's, it's, there's no doubt it's fascinating writing and it, reading Gibbon is, I, I, th I would still assert that it's worthwhile <laughs> without a doubt. Briefly, while we're on that, what, what do you think about his, his assertions about Christianity playing a role in the, the fall of the, the empire? 
Well, of course, one of the um, one, one of the current debates about the subject is whether one should speak about the fall of the Roman Empire at all, or rather about its transformation. Uh, and to some extent, in very recent years, the the guys who think you should talk about the fall of the Roman Empire have made some gains by pointing out a lot of economic dislocation that accompanied the events that we usually refer to as the fall of the Roman Empire. So it certainly does look, you know, as though something fell apart from the political unity of the Roman Empire in the fifth century. Um, However, in some ways, it does make better sense to talk about the transformation of the Roman Empire, because it was still around um, and, and, and indeed recovered a lot of its own territory in the 6th century. And it had what, what a famous historian Francis Yates called a phantasmagorical existence. People you know, couldn't bring themselves to, to believe that this empire that everybody had lived with for hundreds of years was over. And so they kind of maintained the sort of fiction that somehow or other it still existed around, sort of encompassing all the individual states that, that succeeded it in in the western part of the empire. Um, so in a way, it, it does, uh, the sense in which it definitely makes better sense to speak of the transformation. And Christianity obviously played a big part in the transformation of the empire. I mean, I don't think it, it's right to speak of Christianity um, with barbarism causing the fall of the Roman Empire in the way that, that Gibbon rather did. But I certainly think, you know, that the Christian empire was a different beast, was a different kind of setup from what it had been formerly. And, you know, when the emperor gave up his divine status, as everybody knows, the first emperor to do that was Constantine early in the fourth century. And then from the late fourth century and the emperor Theodosius onwards, all emperors forewent that divine state. That was a tremendous sacrifice you know, for them to make and really put the allegiance of the subjects of the empire on a new experimental footing that no one had ever even thought of, you know, let alone tried before. And I think it's really interesting, you know, therefore to ask why that, why that was. And, um, and I think, uh, you know, perhaps one of the big deficiencies of Gibbon's work was that he he didn't really show any interest in why that was. He really thought Christianity was pretty much a load of rubbish and that it wasn't <laughs> worth asking why people um, uh, accepted it. Uh, but of course, you know, they did accept it intellectually and emotionally. And why emperors, you know, should have backed this religion, which emphasized a peace, which usually, you know, if you're running an empire, you're thinking all the time about war rather than peace, and B, you know, celibacy, which would reduce your, your fighting force. It's very odd, you know, that, 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 that they went for, for Christianity in those, um, in those circumstances. And I think in a way that is still an unresolved problem. So you know, I guess my answer to your question is I don't quite agree with the way Gibbon formulated this, but I think he was right to headline Christianity as a transformative influence on the Roman world in the fourth and fifth centuries. Yeah, I think that that's an excellent point. I, I also, there was a time that I was in a, a, a hot tub at a gym a long time ago, and someone was talking about the Roman Empire, and I just wanted to relax, but I, he, he made a comment. <laughs> he made a comment about Alexander Hamilton and corporations, and, and I just couldn't let it slide. And I was like, that's, that's completely false. Uh, that wasn't at all 
the case at the time. And it started this thing where he was asking me if I was a historian. And I was like, no, I'm not a historian, but I do know a fair amount about Alexander Hamilton and uh, Thomas Jefferson and the Roman Empire. And then he posits this question to me about, do I think that Christianity caused the fall of the Roman Empire? Um, and my answer was twofold. And it was, uh, one, I think we're only talking about the Western Roman Empire because you know, the Eastern Roman Empire went on for you know, several hundreds of years past the traditional fall of the West that we consider. Um, and then the other one was, I, I don't think so, because I think it's incredible that it didn't fall sooner. I mean, the, the crisis of the third century and just the, the overall madness that happened of, of infighting for, you know, an entire almost hundred of years when, you know, multiple emperors existing at once and complete overthrow and, you know, militia groups, you know, uh, Yes. Uh, well, of course, that was, that was the answer of St. Augustine and Erasius when people challenged them at the time in the early 5th century and said, well, say, you know, how come as soon as we had a Christian empire, it started to fall apart. <laughs> they pointed out you know, that, it, that it had pretty quite a lot of problems before Christianity came, came along. So, I, I mean, I don't know, it's not perhaps an entirely satisfactory repost, but it definitely suggests that the you know, I think as usual, it suggests that the complexity of, of um, uh, the way culture changes is never easily reducible to a set of causes. Indeed, I mean, I, I, I think I'm right in saying I never use the word cause when I'm trying to relate events to each other. Um, when I was young, which was obviously a very, very long time ago, the, the, it was fashionable to see history as a sort of chain of causes and effects, uh, you know, as if it were like a sort of, you know, a whole link of sausages, which are all kind of connected to one another. And, um, and I, I just never thought that was very plausible or indeed, a, you know, a useful way of, of looking at it. It's really much more like a pile of of sausages, some of which are tied together, and others of which are just kind of sticking out of the pile in a rather untidy fashion. So, um, so I've always tried to avoid talking about um, about causes. I don't think the relationship between events is ever adequately expressed by that by that word. Like, you know, the connections always embrace all kinds of contradictions, and I. I'm interested, I suppose, really in trying to understand complexity, not in simplifying it. I love that. So there's, there's like two branches I want to take with that. But before I do, I want to ask you one question about Constantine and uh, posit a thought or a question. How much do you think the role of um, Christianity becoming uh, transformative in the Roman Empire vis-a-vis Constantine was because of the force of personality of himself and the political advent, the political advantages of taking on Christianity in both of the absolution of sins that definitely Constantine was involved with, especially with the assassinations of his own family members and, and whatnot, um, or just the political advantageousness of uh, uniting, well, getting a new power base, you know, through accepting Christianity and really leaning into it. Yeah, I'm, I, I, I just... I, I'm very dubious about the second point because I think that the power base you acquire when you become a Christian isn't really of great interest to most um, uh, people in, in, who are contending to control huge 
empires because you know it's a religion of slaves and women and and most of the elite in constantine's day i mean the christianity had begun to penetrate the elite but it was still you know pretty much um uh, a religion of the of the poor and the and the marginal so it's not that you know i don't think getting the support and in any case you know christians were pretty much at the mercy of everybody else anyway they weren't an independent force they didn't have any armies you know stalin is supposed to said how many divisions had the pope <laughs> you know, in the early fourth century christians independently didn't really have any um any military uh, any military clout it's possible there were some, some, some legions that were composed largely of Christians, like the famous Christian Legion of St. Morris, whose feast day, I think, was just yesterday. Um, but typically, I don't think uh, that was the case. So I, I don't see it as part of a, a sort of power game. I think the other inference that you, you mentioned is much more attractive as a way of understanding what might have been in Constantine's mind because I mean we still have in the United States today all these politicians who tell you they're born again Christians and of course you know my inclination is immediately to disbelieve these stories of this kind but in a curious way they're reminiscent of Constantine you know who claimed to have this sort of vision at the battle of of Milvian um bridge and conversion stories typically are like that and they tend to include the narrative, if I can go back to that word, that you just sort of alluded to, that I used to be bad, but now I'm born again, I've had a conversion experience, I know I could, so now I'm good. So you can forget all the bad stuff <laughs> and you can confide in, from now on I'm gonna be really good. And I think that's a very common um, feature of, um, I know, political leaders claiming to embrace religion in order to draw a dividing line between their evil past and the prospectively glowing good future that they want to project. I, I mean, I, I was, um, uh, I've just been talking with my global history class here at Notre Dame about Ashoka, the, the mid third century BC emperor in, in India. Who, who left all these rock inscriptions. Some people think that inauthentic, but I think that's perverse. He left all these rock inscriptions about how he'd been converted to Buddhism. And they're very much, you know, along these lines. He actually says things like, well, you know, I know I killed hundreds of thousands of people. He literally says that, but, you know, I'm now a Buddhist, so it's all gonna be okay from now on. And, and it's in a way, you're right that by, it almost doesn't matter what the religion is. If you say, oh, well, I've had this experience. So from now on, everything's going to be different. At least, you know, you've got a pretext for claiming people's allegiance on a new basis, whereas the old basis is probably, you know, sort of clapped out and, and exhausted. So I think that may have been something that influenced um, Constantine. But of course, you know, I mean, you also have to say of Constantine that he did sort of see himself as an intellectual, if you read the inscription over the arch that he erected in, in Rome, it's all about, you know, his insights into the divine mind. He also, you know, presided at the, the council of bishops that drew up the, the Nicene Creed, and he supposed, you know, I mean, I, I don't know how true this is, probably the, the bishops who wrote about it wanted to curry favor with him, but, but you know, he's supposed to have made the decisive 
intervention which sorted out all the theological problems. Um, and indeed, you know, um, uh, he also clearly saw continuities between Christianity and paganism, and you, know, you can see in his coinage the appropriation of of the the image of Apollo and its reapplication to to Christ. So, so he, I, 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 you know, I'm not saying that he he didn't also have possibly intellectual reasons for thinking that Christianity might be true. That's possible, um, but I certainly think that his conversion is not easily explicable purely in terms of power. I think that's a, thank you. You, you reframe my perspective in a lot of ways. Um, I've also been diving quite deep into uh, Buddhism and Christianity's links. And it's interesting that you, you mentioned uh, that King because it's almost like a, well, first off, it's almost like an inverse Macbeth, right? I was a horrible tyrant and now I'm a savior or, or now I'm reborn again, rather. Um, and the ties between the savior religion of Christianity, of, of you have a savior that's going to kind of help you into the promised land and that sect of Buddhism are, are quite interesting to me. Um, I, I have one question to kind of go back to before we went deeper again in Constantine. Thank you. I was just, I was curious your thoughts there. Um, and that's, you mentioned like with Gibbon um, and kind of a segue into some of your work, um, how Gibbon kind of took it as his framing was that the arc, I'll summarize it this way. Um, do I still have you? Oh, you're there. Okay. Uh, that the arc of human history um, always progresses in one direction, being towards progress, or, or given, or I would even say there's a framework that is quite subversively still present in our political discourse of things will get better over time if you just give it the right time. You know, things are always going to get more open, free, um, and and fair in a sense. Um, do you, do you think that that's a fair assessment of Gibbon? And do you think that that's a fair thought line for how to perceive human evolution or cultural evolution? Well, I think Gibbon had a better excuse for believing in progress <laughs> <laughs> because he lived in a, a period where, you know, people hadn't seen quite so much go, go wrong. And indeed, you know, in the, um, in the 18th century, if you, if you know, you measure progress by, by prosperity, by, by, by climate change, by, by um, uh, the uh, increase of population, um, by the uh, growing consensus amongst Europe's intellectual elite uh, in, in uh, you know, about certain principles of, um, uh, of, of how to distinguish truth from falsehood and, and right from wrong, or if you measure it in terms of medical science or, or um, um, I don't know, increasingly liberal laws. Uh, in all of those respects, um, you know, Gibbon was living in a, a period that, um, uh, where, you know, evidence of progress under all of those rubrics was, um, you know, was remarkably apparent, much more so, I suppose, than in, in any other period in the West, maybe since the 13th century, which had some similar, you know, some similar stuff was going on then. So, um, uh, so in a way, I, I, I can exonerate Gibbon for believing in, in progress. Um, obviously, by the time he wrote The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, 
that confidence, that optimism that things were getting better and could be, could e eventually, you know, sort of attain perfection if progress can do, that confidence had been dented by, by the Lisbon earthquake, by the origins of romanticism, by the, in Gibbon's case, by the American Revolution. So, um, or that, at least that, I mean, he already published volume one, but, uh, um, uh, you know, I mean, things were getting wrong in, in some ways already. Um, I don't think there's any excuse for continuing to believe in progress now, <laughs> because, you know, <laughs> since then, we've seen so much um, that undermines any reasonable hypothesis about the um, sustained inevitability of, of progress. And, you know, we've seen the most horrible um, reversals of progress in the uh, in the 20th century, especially in the Second World War and its, its, um, its aftermath, we've seen that all the things that we confide in to indemnify us against disaster, which are basically technological improvements, they all bring, you know, disastrous consequences with them. And indeed, you know, most technological, most technological progress has been really, you know, let's be honest about it, most of it has been devoted to stuff like war, you know, which, 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 which don't conduce to the progress of humankind. On the contrary, uh, contrary to what, you know, Nazis and, and, and Spencerists believe war actually winnows the best in, in, um, uh, in our populations and our especially in our youth, and if we want to progress, the best way to do it is to avoid war. Right. Um, Fitness doesn't we've also mean, seen, uh, you know, things uh, like, our, I suppose the, the thing that we've been most reluctant to abandon is belief in medical progress. But, you know, if you look at the world of COVID-19, we're still relying basically on quarantine to, you know, um, indemnify us against COVID. And that, that, that was what people were using at the time of the Black Death. <laughs> it's not, it, in many ways, what is remarkable about the history of science is how resistant to progress people are and how, you know, how unwilling they are to change their scientific paradigms. And if you look at, you know, medical progress in inverted commas dispassionately, you have to say that, you know, we've never had so many lifestyle diseases and we've never had such bad mental health as we've got today. So progress is selective. It's sometimes better stuff, sometimes worse. Most of the time, it's morally neutral. And I guess, you know, if I, if I wanted a world in which I could be convinced that there was progress, I want to see two kinds of progress in evidence. I'd want to see intellectual progress. I'd like to see us be cleverer you know, than our ancestors. But there's no, there's no, nothing makes me, makes me think that, it seems to me, because I have written a, a book about the you know, sort of history of ideas, and in, in this I argue that most of the best ideas in the world were thought of thousands, in some cases scores of thousands of years ago. Um, and I don't see any evidence that anybody today, on average, people today are not no cleverer than our early hominid ancestors and certainly the early homo sapiens um, and i'd also say that says intellectual progress don't see any evidence of that and the second thing i'd like to see is moral progress but i don't see that it seems to me that the balance of virtue 
and vice is pretty much a constant in history. If there's one thing that doesn't change, it seems to me, you know, humans' moral capacity, which has always been deficient and remains deficient today. That's, uh, that sparks a lot of interesting thought. Um, so I, I wanted to actually touch upon that. So maybe I can just segue right into that. Um, what, are, what, what would be an example of an idea that's one of the best ideas that a sapien has come up with, uh, but that happens to be quite ancient? Well, you know, you, can, you could speak of things like the idea of infinity and eternity. These are extraordinary ideas because they're quite beyond experience, and yet people thought of them certainly thousands, perhaps scores for thousands um, of years. I mean, I like the idea of God. You know, there are a lot of people who think it's a rather childish idea. On the contrary, I think it's childish to think it's childish because it's a really subtle notion. You know? and, I mean, if you define God as um, a creator of everything except himself, I'm allowed to use a masculine pronoun, if, if you think of him as the creator of everything except himself, out of nothing, that's an extraordinary notion. And it brings me, I suppose, to what I think is the most fantastic idea of all, which um, again has a very um, uh, extensive antiquity behind. In fact, it's, it's such an early idea that we, we just don't know how long ago it first arose. And that's the idea of nothing. I mean, to me, that's the greatest idea in the world, <laughs> because, because, because not only is it contrary to experience, I mean, we cannot experience nothing, and yet we can think of it. And, 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 but the paradox is, as soon as we think of it, it becomes something. <laughs> it's a self-subversive idea. And that people got their heads around this notion and many thousands of years ago, it seems to me to be a great tribute to their imaginations, to their, their inventiveness. I mean, a lot of my friends, especially in the hard sciences, still can't understand the idea of nothing. And when they talk about creation, they say, oh, well, you know, there was, there was energy, or there were these filaments of energy, but that's nothing. <laughs> if you really think of nothing, it's got, it's, there's nothing there, it's, empty. it's a totally, you know, sort of empty, um, uh, um, uh, world and, and, and it's very hard to get one's mind around that, very hard to find language that describes it. But once you've done it, you know, all these other sort of notions um, open up, uh, in, including, of course, that of, of God, at least God as the, as the Judeo-Christian and Islamic traditions understands him. So I think, um, you know, if you if you held a pistol to my head and said, you know, you can take one idea with you beyond the grave that you're, you're condemned, you know, forget everything else. I'd take the idea of nothing. That's beautiful. I really, I like that. Uh, I like that both as a framework and as an idea to take beyond, because if beyond is nothing, perhaps you'll actually be able to experience it in a way that is both incomprehensible and perhaps indispensable so I, I wanted to ask you this question and that's do you think that imagination which is the ability or, or the the required feature to be able to conceptualize nothing do you think 
that imagination perhaps is the most human of all of our characteristics? Is that, is that really what defines homo sapiens? Because I thought with some of the points you brought up in your, your book about humanity and how like tools is not that uh, exceptional. I mean, just the other day I was walking down the street and I saw a crow using a stick to get worms out of the ground. So, I mean, like it, clearly tools is not something that is unique to us, nor is our ability to organize or communicate. Like I've, I've studied wolves quite extensively and how they communicate with each other in packs or even have matriarchal and patriarchal societies that actually do some type of consensus voting. I mean, the, the, the amount of the depths of, of, or even culture and tradition, like these things are not unique to us. So would, I would posit the thought, do you think that imagination may be perhaps the, the most human of, of all faculties? Well, in a way, the answer is yes, but before, <laughs> before I get to it, and, and obviously it requires a certain amount of nuancing, um, uh, I, I think it's important just to bear in mind that when we, when we commend crows and wolves for their smartness, and you know, crows and wolves are very, very smart creatures by our standards, what we really mean is that they do things that we admire, like you know, in the case of Corfids, they use tools and they have, um, I don't know, methods of communication which are strangely like speech. And uh, to some extent, that's true of, uh, of wolves also. They've got these um, protocols that you mentioned for social communication, which, um, which we admire because we, we rely very heavily on, on our method of communicating socially, which is language. Um, for almost everything that we we do, certainly everything we do collaboratively, but these are you know these are human standards. We're you know, and it's kind of a mistake, I think, to judge other creatures in relation to our own our own values and our own propensities. We should really be judging them according to them the, their own priorities. And you know, I mean, I always point out that my 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 dog, um, uh, a lot of people think my dog is, is dumb because he doesn't do what I tell him. <laughs> but, but from his perspective, he's being really clever <laughs> because he's getting away with his own priorities and his own values. And he knows that he doesn't forfeit my, my love there, thereby. On the contrary, you know, he thinks I'm really stupid because I don't share his values. I, I don't go around sort of sniffing nantos and stuff. <laughs> So really, you know, every and, and every species probably, as far as we know, makes the same mistake of judging others in a relation to its own um, same scale of of priorities. Um, nonetheless, you know, I I, I do think it, it's if if we want to be humble, if we want to see our own deficiencies, we should compare ourselves with the capacities of our fellow creatures. And I'm, obviously, I spend quite a lot of my time. Um, doing that, I've written a book about that as well. But 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 to me, the um, um, there's no I don't know of any faculty, any quality, that is uniquely and exclusively human. But I do think that there are some faculties and qualities that we have to a degree that is so much greater than that of other species as always to constitute a difference of quality. And I think imagine, I put imagination at the top of my list right? because uh, obviously other creatures have this, I define imagination as the power of seeing what isn't there, you know. 
And any animal that hunts or is hunted has to have at, at least part of imagination, which is the quality of anticipation, it has to be able to able, you know, to to, to um, foresee a predator coming around the tree or or, or, or prey, you know, emerging from the undergrowth. Um, so, so we're not unique in having imagination, but the extent to which we have it is, I think, demonstrably and measurably far greater than that of any other species. And the obvious species to compare ourselves with here are those which are closest to us in evolutionary terms, that's other primates and especially other apes. And you can see that these creatures have, um, um, have imaginative capacities, but they don't, as far as we can tell, um, you know, imagine the, these, um, uh, these defiantly imaginative notions like eternity, affinity, nothing, um, uh, their, uh, their, their art, if one can speak of it at all, uh, it, it's very impressive that they have stuff that we think might be art, but it's very limited by comparison with the, the stuff that human imaginations generate. And so I was going to ask why that is, what's special about humans in this respect? And I think it's that amongst our fellow primates and apes, we and our hominid ancestors have a very long history of hunting, which has honed our anticipatory faculties. We may not be the only hunting ape species, chimpanzees and bonobos do a bit of hunting, at least many of their communities do, but as far as we can tell, it contributes very little to their economy. I mean, typically they, they get about 3% of their protein from hunting, whereas human communities typically get, depending on their, their economies, they typically get between 40 and 60% of their, their protein from animal sources. So, um, uh, so, so hunting is very much less important for them than it is for us. And as far as we know, they haven't been doing it for nearly so so long, because we don't have any any hard evidence that any chimpanzee is hunting before the 1960s. It may well go back beyond that, but we don't know. Whereas in the case of our own ancestors, it probably goes back, you know, a couple of million um, years. I mean, it, it, it's at least, you know, um, uh, th there are good reasons for, for thinking that it might be an experience that's as long as, uh, as that. And in any case, it's a very long experience. So hunting really hones one's anticipatory faculties. And obviously the other big co constituent of imagination is memory. But in this respect, the operation of memory is paradoxical because to some extent it it, it stimulates imagination if you've got a bad memory, because every time you misremember something that really happened, you're, you're imagining something that didn't. So in a strange way, the fact that humans have rather inefficient memories has, has stimulated us to be imaginative animals. And I think if you put together that those bad memories and those good anticipations, you get a very imaginative animal, and that's what we are. That's... That's a very tight uh, hypothesis. I, I like that. Uh, the relationship between hunting and imagination is not one that I've, I've pondered uh, quite, quite before. Um, I think that's really interesting. Uh, kind of segueing that into some of the more ideas from, from your book that we're kind of skirting around. 
Um, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, so connecting the idea of what you just said, how bad memories tend to have an imprint on us a, a bit more than positive ones. Do you think that that has something in, to, at all to relate to the fact that bad ideas tend to have a better, uh, uh, how did you put it, uh, uh, are, are more influential, that bad ideas tend to be more influential than good ones? Do you, do you see a relation there? Or do you even, is that a correct assertion that you believe that bad ideas tend to have a better influence or more of an influence? Yes, I, I'm afraid I, I, do, I do think the evidence supports that. Um, I think the evidence supports that conclusion. I mean, I mentioned earlier, you know, the resistance of scientific communities to innovation. Um, I think that's a very good example of um, how good ideas very often, you know, get left on the cutting room floor, they get excluded, uh, they're, they're rejected, they're not accepted. Uh, because of the inertia of the way communities operate, conservatism is a almost universal human characteristic, and it's obviously, you know, by definition, hostile to innovation. Um, I also think the sort of community that I live in, the academic community, is, um, is very culpable for suppressing, excluding, condemning to oblivion, or just ignoring, you know, really great ideas, because we, you know, we tend to be, we're in a world dominated by a sort of professorial establishment, an elite that's very invested in its own rectitude and its own correctness. And anybody who questions these ideas, you know, tends not to get a job <laughs> and possibly not even a PhD. And, uh, you know, I mean, I have seen examples and my favorite PhD student was one who disproved a theory of mine. <laughs> but, but, you know, I've read a lot of my kind, of course, we also have peer review which is really a way of stopping people having new ideas. It's not that it's not watertight in that respect, but that, that tends to be very hostile. So for those reasons, uh, it's quite difficult, you know, to get a, a good idea um, onto the stocks, onto the shelves. Um, whereas with bad ideas, <laughs> you know, um, they tend to be very to explain good ideas tend to be very complex and elusive and difficult. Um, uh, you know, like those concepts that I mentioned earlier, like nothing and eternity and infinity. People ask you, well, you know, what is it? What is nothing? You can't, <laughs> it's very difficult to explain that. Um, so I imagine when the, when the idea of nothing first cropped up, people said, nah, you know, <laughs> there's nothing in it. Um, nothing will come of um, of nothing. Indeed, in, in very early texts about it, you can see this resistance. You, know, you can see in early Brahminical texts, in the Upanishads, you can see people really wrestling with this notion of nothing and very often condemning it as, as meaningless, I mean, literally meaningless. So, um, uh, so, whereas if you've got an easy idea, you know, you can sell that. Um, pe people respond positively to what they they understand and what is false is easier to accept than what is true because what is false tends to be simple and what is true tends to be complex and 
that's why we live in the era of fake news, you know, and why it's easy for noisy little men with simplistic solutions to our political problems to get a lot of votes. That's, uh, I like that. Um, it's something I think a lot about that I think that uh, us as sapiens inherited from our, our uh, fellow ape ancestors is a love of comfort. I think we like to live and we like to be in comfort and often I think to your point, good ideas or new ideas or fresh ideas tend to challenge our sense of comfort and, and force us to grow. Um, well, how right you are, John. I mean, comfort is one of the greatest enemies of well-being <laughs> because yes. people confuse it with well-being, whereas really, it just if you're if you're seeking comfort, it condemns you to being a slob. And I, one of the most most extraordinary things to me is about the COVID crisis is, um, you know, as you may notice, I, I'm still wearing a, a collar and tie, and, and I, I, I've become obsessive, you know, about, about maintaining, maintaining standards during the, uh, during the COVID crisis, because, um, you know, I think if people um, abandon standards in favor of slobbery, you know, they're just going to, uh, they're, they're, they're they're going to vegetate in the dirt, like the, the, the uh, like the, the what traditionally would consider to be the lowest forms of life. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I, as you can see, I'm wearing a, a, a polo. I, I don't tend to, I don't like ties, but I, I have still been getting dressed every day to a standard. No, well, you're, you're not, you're not the right generation, you know. But I'm, 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 I'm very old, so I maintain the standards of my generation. Or I try to. You hide your age very well. Um, yeah, no, and, and I think that there's a, a lot of truth to that too. And, and I think something that ends up happening to us as, as beings is the more that we kind of allow ourselves to live in comfort, the more that the kind of rock of our existence is stagnant and kind of gets piled on top of. So, you know, I, I truly think life is a Sisyphean effort where we're constantly rolling a, a rock uphill, it's going to come right back down again. Um, but things only exist in motion. So the more that we become stagnant, the larger that rock becomes and the harder it is to get up the hill and the faller, faster it'll fall back down again. Um, yeah, I think don't, don't linger by the, the still waters or in the green pastures, you know, head for the hills, head for the, the, the mountains, climb the steep and rugged pathway and smite the living water from the rock. Yeah, the the you're, I think you're invoking Robert Frost's uh, two lanes diverged, and also the Romans don't rest on your laurels, right? Um, yes. I, I think something else too that I kind of want to mention there is um, I have this this personal belief that I use as kind of a guiding framework, and that's uh, that truth only exists in paradox, and it's never one thing, and it's it's frequently multiple things at once, and it's it's most frequently intangible. Right, like most of the things that we find are true, I mean, even down to the physics level of you know what is this particle tends to exist in this type of of paradox of how can that be? Like nothing is is something, but how can nothing be something? Right, like that that right there is a, is a great paradox. Um, and I, I like also what you were saying of kind of well, let me, let me flip it around too because uh, I was reading this over. Yes, can I just. Um, yeah, go ahead. Interject. I mean, because I, I absolutely agree with what you say. I think that, you know, that, that logic is very useful for distinguishing, uh, you know, what is a true proposition from what is a false proposition. But it's not very good, you know, in distinguishing truth from falsehood in a broader 
sense because um, th contradictory things can be true simultaneously. They can be true simultaneously in the observed world, like you, know, the, you mentioned, you alluded to the nature of light. Um, the whole quantum world is really riven with paradox and yet it's real, it's, it's there, it, we are part of it, you know, we're, 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 we're living in it and on it. Um, uh, and, it and, and of course these contradictions can also be true in, um, uh, uh, you know, in a, in a metaphysical sense, because, you know, um, wine and water can be blood and flesh and, and God can be one and, um, one and three. And I, I think if you, if you have trouble with those concepts on the grounds that they, they defy the rules of logic, then you're probably overestimating the power of logic to uh, disclose truth. You need a, a variety of, of, of techniques in, 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 and, and, and I think you're right in, in, in suggesting that even if you manipulate all those techniques with great and honesty, um, you, you still doubting your conclusions. Yeah, and, and I think I think certainty is comfort. And that with that certainty and with that comfort, uh, you, you leave yourself open to a lot of blind spots, kind of circling or squaring everything up that we've been just kind of talking about. Um, so I, I also read that in this in your book on truth, which I haven't read yet, but I'm, I'm dying to get on next actually um why do you think that the pace of innovative thinking and kind of the study of truth is under threat um well Real quick, I, I, does it go back to the that bad ideas are easy to get away um, with and good ideas well i think those are two kind of different questions and i'll deal with them separately since we've been talking about truth i'll deal with the first of all the question about is um is the um, is the notion of truth under threat? Well, in a sense, I mean, I think people's confidence that it's worth asking whether something is true or not. I think that confidence is under threat. I mean, we do have you know people like like President Trump's spokeswoman telling us that um, uh, the 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 facts of the number of people who attended his um, his inauguration celebrations are immaterial because it's his truth that counts, uh, uh, which is uh, as though you know the, the, the truth per se relative. It doesn't really matter. You, know, you, you kind of just to say what you you like. Um, I think there is a danger from that um, from that kind of of thinking, and I always appeal to what that very wise man, friend of mine, much lamented, Roger Scruton said about this. He says, if a man tells you there is no such thing as truth, don't believe him. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, I, you know, I think that is the great, that is the great repost. I, you know, I think we should acknowledge that the truth is very elusive. And, you know, we're, 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 our means of identifying it are, um, are such that we should be humble when we think we've found it and be willing to admit that we could be, we could be wrong. But we mustn't abandon confidence in the, um, 
in, in the existence of reality, you know, and, and in our ability, if not to express it exactly, you know, with a perfect match between the language we use and the reality it represents. We've got to believe that it's worth trying to get as close as possible, you know, otherwise, um, um, you know, then uh, um, you know, pink does become green and, and, and right becomes wrong and, and, and we are in a sort of allied world. Uh, and a lot of people want to be in that world. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, that's, of course, entirely up to them, but I don't recommend it as a new destination um, for society as a, uh, as a whole. I think in order to be confident in our ways of responding to reality, we've got to be persevering in trying to identify what that reality is and expressing it as faithfully as we possibly um, as we possibly can. Uh, but so anyway, for those reasons, I do think there is a kind of threat to that, um, uh, that, 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 that traditional quest. Um, uh, as for the, the, your other question about why I think the pace of innovation um, it, it is, it is, is, is variable. <laughs> I, I just think that, that that's sort of historically demonstrable. You know, there have been times when the pace of innovation has quickened and times when it's slowed. And we've just been through, and possibly may we may still be in, the most hectic, you know, madcap period of acceleration uh, of innovation that the world has, as far as we know, ever experience and that really begins in the 1890s or thereabouts. I mean, that's when, you know, everything, all the, everything, that's when the, the graft, you know, really sort of shoots off the paper in almost every measurable way. Uh, and when the traditional certainties on which um, uh, Western, Western elites had relied to situate themselves in the world and to justify their proceedings. All those certainties have really been undermined by a, a succession of discoveries and a new thinking, which has, um, uh, which has been very intense. And, and, and it may have been at its most intense uh, in the period between about 1900 and 1914. It's, but these things are quite difficult to measure. It's, 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 it's certainly maintained a very intense pace of innovation and the whole world has changed with it you know i, I think um if you um you know even i uh who i'm i know i'm very old but you know i i i i, I only witnessed the sort of second half of the 20th century <laughs> and and even over that relatively short period of time i i feel uh, I'm assailed by the pace of change because I, it seems to me that, I, I mean, I often feel like Rip Van Winkle. It seems to me every morning I wake up in a world which is unrecognizable from the one that I went to sleep in the night before because so much has changed overnight. So I think the, this, this pace of, of change has been very um, alarming. People who um, 
uh, have found it hard to adjust um, to this kind of constant series of, of revolutions. Um, but it doesn't mean that it's going to go on like that. I mean, I, I, as I say, every previous period of intense innovation has come to an end and been succeeded by one of relative stagnation. So I presume at some point, if we're not already in it, we're going to be in a period of stagnation. Um, we're going to be in a period of stagnation again. And I'm, you know, I'm not sure that's necessarily all that, that bad a thing, because I, I think that if you have got unbridled, unrestrained change. It, the effect on, on people's psyche is very unsettling, very jarring. I think there's probably you know, a connection between the, the rampant nature of mental ill health and the pace of change to which people are exposed. And if you can't keep pace with change, you know, you've really got um, two main options. One is to go mad, and the other is to become reactionary and highly conservative. And we see both of those things happening in our, in our world. So to, to, possibly it wouldn't be a bad thing if the pace of change were to let up a bit. I, the reason I predict it is simply on the basis of, you know, the, of, of the, the, the historical record. The, 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 the future may be completely different from the past, but we've got no other method of predicting it than to use the past as our framework of reference. And on those grounds, you know, I'm, I'm predicting that the pace of change will ease. That's, uh, yeah, I can definitely, I, I understand your point a lot more. I believe it was Rousseau in one of his discourses, um, the theory was that uh, technology always will outpace our morality. And that's something that I've, uh, I believe it was Rousseau that I've really thought about a lot, and especially in in, in in the context of today, in which, you know, what somebody was taught with a chemistry set in the '90s is now something that they can go to Home Depot and, and get with a you know an order on uh, the, from the internet, and, and and the destructive power that that is comes with, or even I mean, our cell phones and algorithms running our lives, and and how much of and playing on our base sapient kind of impulses. Um, you know, how, how does that kind of shape us and then get shaped back? And, and where is our moral or ethical center in all of that? So, so perhaps to deposit and kind of extend your thought, perhaps maybe it is good that it stagnates for a little bit and gives us our, our culture time to catch up. Yeah, I didn't know Rousseau said that, but I, mean, I don't think it's true. I mean, um, um, uh, 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 the, the, obviously the weapons of destruction are the most obvious um, Example. I mean, we 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 now have transformed power of destruction, but we certainly don't have transformed moral sensibility. I mean, I would say, I was saying earlier, I think our moral sensibility is unchanged ever since. Really, we we have any evidence about it at all. Um, and there are also things like robotics and genetics. Yes. Um, the uh, means of control of which we can't agree about because we 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 you know we don't have a, a consensus about um, uh, uh, um, about how to distinguish using them from good using them for good from using them for for bad you know, I mean in the case of genetics for example you know we can modify almost any organism we like now almost modify it however we 
we we want to. And to some extent, you can see that you know you can say well some of that might be good because it might might help to solve problems of world food supply, but in other respects, it's going to be bad because with every every food source you you modify, you create environmental potential environmental problems and real problems for the the producers of those foods are often impoverished and in consequence and then of course you know when it comes to modifying more complex organisms such as as human beings you can see that there are some ways in which the application of this technology might be considered good might might um, help to eliminate some diseases but then you can see ways in which it could be bad because it will also enable us to eliminate socially undesirable minorities <laughs> right, right, um, right. and, or, and or realize traits. you know it could realize the geneticist dystopia that you know the nazis dreamt of so i i think that, that these and you can say pretty much the same sort of things about robotics you know say called artificial intelligence as well so i think all of those examples do show that the pace of technology outstrips our moral capacity to cope yeah and and i would even say that uh the most recent technologies are even the the exponential it's a bell curve of how much the technology is outpacing a morality because and i think personally even if the innovation does stagnate just the tools we have today i think that that gap is going to keep going for a lot of the things that you just said right like like personally i have dyslexia right so that's probably an undesirable trait that someone would choose to have in their child, potentially, if they were able to genetically print a child, right? But, you know, that type of disability, if, if you want to call it that, actually lends itself to be extremely good at uh, understanding abstract concepts or relating, relating abstract things to each other, right? Like, it's not a zero-sum game. I don't lose something. I gain something somewhere else, right? And, and I, I often wonder that about the morality of some of these decisions that we have coming up in also back to your, your point about bad ideas and, and kind of the distribution of them, um, how much it is hard to explain that complexity and, and that interrelationship of, of the technology we have now and, and kind of what's to come with it. Um, I, yes, I, I mean, I, I tend to think very highly of disabilities and even more highly of people with them. Dyslexia seems to me to be, you know, a really great disability to have in your life but but i think mild dyslexia and i've you know observed plenty of examples of this in my years as a as a teacher is actually good for people who suffer from it because it means that they take so much more care over what they read and write than than their than their fellow students who think it's you know it comes from easy and say they don't bother and in a strange way you know some of the best students i've had have been People who suffered from mild dyslexia because of that, and to you know, given given um, uh, um, encouragement and, and the right level of help, which doesn't humiliate them, but which is actually you know positive and and, and shows that one values uh, their work. They 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 um, they have at least you know uh, as much potential, very often more than the. Um, than their non-dyslexic um, classmates. That's interesting. I, I appreciate that that sentiment. I've I've, I've noticed that. Uh, so I in another life I was a, I studied linguistics and creative writing, and I noticed that my my intensity in which I look at grammar or sentence structures or or etymology of words and things like that tend to have been a lot more intensive than than some of my uh, classmates. 
Oh, well, there you are. You see, and I, I, I mean, I venture to suggest that that might be, at least in part, a consequence of your dyslexia. So, you know, you, you, one should never... <laughs> I mean, I, I'm a terrible pessimist myself, but you should, you should never exclude, you know, the bright side from contemplation. And, and if, um, you know, if, uh, if, if when we all have afflictions and sufferings and... Um, and deficiencies, and and I think the the best way to, to deal with them is to say, well, you know, what? How can I turn these to the good? What yes. what use can I make of them? Yeah, no, I, I think identifying your sufferings and, and turning that coal into a diamond is is the process of being a a well well rounded human. Um, I I tend to favor the Stoic tradition myself, so that's that's definitely kind of from there. Um, so so extending some of these ideas that you have, so there's a a quote that I'm probably getting some of it wrong and I'm going to extend it into my own words, but Victor Hugo, uh, there's a famous Victor Hugo quote that I'm probably, like I said, saying it improperly, but um, what's the question is what's stronger than all of the armies of the world stacked on top of each other. Um, and his response is an idea whose time has come. Um, and then something I extend to that is uh, what's the second most powerful thing in the world. And that's an idea whose time has yet to pass. And with some of these kind of revolutionary, well, I won't use the word revolutionary because I want to ask your thoughts on that definition in a little bit, but with some of these large paces of human progress, um, perhaps maybe we can start with the Renaissance and then you know move more into the Industrial Revolution. How much of those fast paces were from ideas that were kind of primed and ready to, re to dethrone the established idea order? Well, I, I'm. If you, if you ask me, um, um, how new, <laughs> you know, was the thinking that went into what we call the Renaissance? I mean, I'd say not at all, because the whole point of it was it was a Renaissance. It was a rebirth of you know what had already happened, or you know, thinking that people had already done. Um, and um, I mean, I think what's remarkable about what we call the, the, the Renaissance, this period of intensified um, rediscovery of ancient Greek and Roman models of life and thought and aesthetics, that's really what we mean usually when we talk about the the Renaissance. And it's an intensification because people in what we conventionally called the Middle Ages, had never forgotten, you know, about the Greeks and Romans, and they were always seeking to imitate them. Uh, but the, but that, that, that desire to imitate the Greeks and Romans unquestionably is intensified in the late Middle Ages and the early modern um, period. But what seems to me to be remarkable about it is that it happens at a time of relative, happens in the West, and, you know, fundamentally in, in Latin Christendom, in roughly speaking, in Western Europe. Um, it happens in the West at a time when that part of the world is relatively isolated. Usually, in order to have great intellectual movements, you know, that, that, that change paradigms and make people think differently, and uh, th th those usually depend on intercultural relationships. Because people are very bad at changing their own minds. They usually have to have, you know, inferences from outside to work on them. And, and great intellectual movements like, you know, the, the Age of Sages in the 
first century BC, the the the, the Renaissance, the High Middle Ages, the Enlightenment. Um, these these movements, um, all of which we think of as Western European movements, all happened only because thinkers in the West had access to ideas from other parts of, of Eurasia, and it's because of the influence of you know, Chinese and Indian and, and Islamic thought, um, mutatis mutandis, that those, those transformations can happen. The Renaissance is kind of the anomaly. It's the odd man out. It is a great intellectual movement. In some ways, you could say it's the first genuinely global intellectual movement, because previously, no intellectual movement, however far reaching, could cross the oceans or reach, you know, sub-Saharan Africa if it started in the Northern Hemisphere. So um, we don't really know about the great intellectual movements that started elsewhere, because they're just not recorded. So, um, uh, so in a way, you know, the Renaissance really is an important episode in the history of the the world, yet it's very hard to explain because it's, it breaks the rule that you have to have intercultural influences to, I don't know, trigger, if you like to use that word, um, a great intellectual revolution. And I, I mean, I think the, 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 the solution to that problem lies in the, the, the way indirect communication across Eurasia was maintained via the Islamic world, even in a period when direct communications between Europe and China and India had, had collapsed. Um, you've got the Islamic world sort of mediating these, these influences. That's a very crude um, uh, um, summation of what, of what happened. I think basically that's why the Renaissance is possible. Um, so it's not a case of, you know, the new ideas suddenly, you know, leaping like Athena from the brow of Zeus, you know, it's, it's old ideas being um, contemplated with increasing intensity and stimulated by, by um, ideas from other cultures and fundamentally from, from China and Islam and, of course, to some extent, Eastern Christianity as well. Yeah, that, that, I, I thank you for that reframing. I, uh, part of the, what actually spurred me to re, uh, reach out to you was a conversation I had on, on this podcast with a, a different guest who uh, I, I had mentioned that uh, I believe a lot of the Renaissance, uh, the evolution that happened within the Renaissance uh, is due to the cultural and kind of, I, I guess the cultural and intellectual um, harboring or nurturing that happened in the Islamic world that eventually did start making its way over into Europe that kind of um, perhaps with the kind of the evolving monastic uh, you know as a system of curating these ideas and kind of continuing to kind of carry on the reading of Greeks and and Latin and uh, spurring that thought along all of a sudden kind of had a, a spark from the Islamic world that kind of exploded and something that I had read was um, was one of your thoughts was that Western ideas are often initiated with an exchange from the wider world as opposed to, I mean, perhaps a lot of the assumptions that we have, um, at least I, I can speak as an American, is that, you know, Western thought is, is, comes from the West. It started with the West and, you know, we're proud of that. Uh, where I, I think what you're, you're challenging is that it's almost always a, uh, 
kind of influenced from somewhere else that then kind of with the cultural geography and, you know, ecology and the kind of mixing between all of those that then creates a, a, a cocktail of something new. Am I getting that right? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that um, um, great cultural movements are intensely intercultural collaborations in a sense. And that um, I'm not trying to say something politically correct here because God knows, you know, I haven't got a politically correct um, bone in my body, but, but uh, um, and, and it's certainly true that, you know, the, the, the parts of what we call the West, parts of Western Europe and the United States have been disproportionately influential in spreading innovative uh, and very often, you know, um, illuminating notions uh, to other parts of the world, especially um, since the, the 16th century because uh, of the importance of European initiatives in reaching out to other cultures. Um, first of all, by way of exploration uh, and then by way of imperialism. Um, and you, you, know, you, you may hate those things, but they, they created huge arenas of cultural exchange in which, which Western travelers, merchants, missionaries, and imperialists, and armies, of course, could mediate these ideas as well, very often not of not Western origin, but, 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 but they were transmitted to the rest of the world via the West. So the West does have you know, a unique place in this very brief period of history, which is probably now at an end. Um, uh, but but we, we mustn't misrepresent this as constituting evidence that the, you know, the, the rest of the world needed the West to save it. Like, I mean, that, that I think would be an, um, an intolerable um, uh, in, inference and, 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 and you know, um, morally vicious because, uh, because it's so immodest and so, and so arrogant. I think if you're going to understand the history of the world, you've got to see the world as your unit of, of study and not privilege any part of it to the exclusion or occlusion of others. Okay, I have a, I have a question to kind of riff with that I, when I was preparing for this, uh, well, this is also just something that I personally ponder quite a bit. Um, I like something that you said, uh, I'll probably get the direct quote wrong, but essentially was that Europe is not, it's, it shouldn't be treated as its own con- continent itself, it's just a plateau out of Asia. Um, and, and a question that I have from that kind of relating to the um, transformation of ideas that Europe had, right? Like Europe, um, I'm, I'm just going to use this for the sake of my point, um, Europe has been really great at uh, taking ideas, European culture, and I'm, I'm, I'm incredibly overgeneralizing just for the sake of my point, um, is really great at taking ideas from elsewhere and transforming them to suit their own purpose in some way. And my, my question to you, how much do you think the ecology and geography of Europe, that being very, you know, uh, intensive as far as the, you know, rivers and 
mountains and valleys and just the, the overall propensity of changes of, of geography and kind of the cultural friction that that created between groups um, almost created its own kind of competition that the fitness was necessary more so than other spots of land. So, you know, taking an idea and being able to run with it, if it's, you know, advances in metallurgy or, uh, you know, any type of technology, anything from animal husbandry through taking, um, I mean, it, it's quite fascinating how many of the crops that were incredibly successful in Europe were not domesticated anywhere in Europe. They were, they were kind of brought over and then all of a sudden, you know, investments in, in irrigation technology or, or, or farming or even just creating a better plow um, kind of really took things off in, in, into Europe in a different way. Um, so, so I guess kind of my question is how much, if at all, do you think that that kind of cultural friction based off of geography uh, shaped Europeans to, to kind of really run with whatever they got from anywhere else, almost like a, it, it is a fitness thing, right? That's kind of what my, the basis of my question is. Well, I, um, I, 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 I think it's very, it's, I think it's very difficult to, to answer, to respond to the part of the, your question, which is about friction. Um, uh, because in a way, you know, this sort of language where you, you take a term like, like, like friction or other terms that are related to, um, uh, I don't know, conflictive encounters. Um, uh, the, the, it always seems to me to be that there's a danger of, of sort of, I know, a kind of social Darwinian or Spencerist notion that, that conflict is somehow good, you know. And, and I, I, I mean, I'm, I wouldn't rule that out entirely. I mean, conflict can produce... Um, I don't want to make that assertion yeah. at all. No, no I, 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 no, I'm sure you I'm sure you don't, but, but since you use the word friction, I just want to, to, to contextualize it a bit and, 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 and make it clear that, um, that I don't think, uh, with, with the exception of these, these, these slightly marginal cases where conflict can be good, like, you know, it can be an agent of cultural exchange, like, you know, Alexander's arm is being a mediator between Europe and and India and Napoleon's armies spreading the French Revolution. Um, so, that, that, I mean, that can happen. Also, of course, conflict can produce individual acts of great nobility and sacrifice and heroism and stuff like that. So I, I'm not saying that conflict is never, <laughs> never has anything positive about it. But on the whole, um, I think the sort of old notion, which really, I guess, goes back to Darwin and, and Spencer, the notion of the struggle for survival is, you know, what drives progressive change. Um, I think on the whole, I don't believe in that. I think the reverse. I think that, that, you know, if we are ever going to make progress, we've got to do it by collaboration and in peace. Um, Nonetheless, you know, the question that you raise about the influence of geography on the history of Europe is obviously of fundamental importance. And I would say that, you know, again, putting it very crudely, because I suppose we don't have time for all the nuances, um, there are really two main ways of approaching this question. One is to look as my other great friend, who I often disagree with, Jared Diamond, you know, has pointed out that um, the configurations of of Eurasia or possibly it's times of Eurasia and North Africa considered together are very conducive to, to innovation and development. And, and, and I think he would say that, uh, you know, they're conducive to, 
to, to qualitatively good things like civilization and stuff like that. Um, uh, and it is true that Europe, because as you, know, you rightly say, Europe isn't really a continent, it's a promontory of, of Asia, and Europe's exposure to influences from the, the East, um, um, I know definitely, uh, it's definitely an advantage when, when you're, when if, if, if what you want is, is, is um, a culture that's rich in, in innovation. Uh, I mean, you know, I say if you want that, because a lot of cultures don't want that. A lot of cultures just, just want to remain the same forever. Um, and some of them are quite successful in that. But if you want change, it's good to be exposed to influences from outside. And I suppose the second way of looking at the, the historical geography of Europe is to see it as, which is, and this is really how I see it, as really a part of the world that, if you look at it, if you reduce Europe to its most, um, abstract outlines. It's really like a sort of imperfect triangle with its apex at the Straits of Gibraltar. And the two axes, which are the Atlantic and Mediterranean faces of the, of the continent and the islands that are close to them. Um, and these two, the two arms of this angle are as it were separated by a long chain of uplands and mountains and marshlands, which really occupy the sort of center of the European um, uh, area. Uh, and, and they're very difficult to cross. You know, they're, they're a watershed, almost all the rivers, the Rhone really being the only major exception, almost all the rivers of Europe flow either northwards out of that breakwater or southwards towards the Mediterranean out of it. Um, and and, they, and the, the, there are relatively few gaps and useful passes um, that enabled people in antiquity to to cross. So in a way, the history of Europe in terms of its historical geography is intelligible as the, the formation of these two great economic zones, the Atlantic face of Europe and the Mediterranean face of Europe, which have always been very hard to bring together. Um, because you've got to cross that breakwater or else you've got to create sea lanes that embrace both the Atlantic and the Mediterranean. And for various reasons connected with the currents and the winds and the, the history of navigation and the history of shipbuilding, it's, it's been, it was a very long, hard job to bring those two economic zones um, together. And in a way, you know, Europe is still struggling to overcome um, this this disunited geography and the European Union is in a sense, you know, the, the, the last of many efforts um, to do that. The first successful effort was that of the Roman Empire and that lasted for quite a long time. But um, since then, further efforts have, have, have never been successful for very long and, and we're, we're waiting really to see whether the European Union can buck the trend. Uh, but of course, this, this, the, these the two arms of the angle form this imperfect triangle, which really doesn't have a, a, a third side. I mean, I've always argued that the, the, the Volga is really Europe's third sea, and Europe will, uh, you know, really become a, a reality when the when the economy of the Volga Valley is is integrated with the rest. But again, that's not going to happen in the foreseeable future because because of political obstacles to the um, economic unification of, 
uh, of Russia with the rest of Europe. I know that's got, not going to happen for, for, for um, uh, well, for as long as I can envisage for the future anyway. But, but, but that's, the, the, I'd say broadly speaking, if you want a kind of a historical geography of Europe, those are the two great themes. It's accessibility from the East and it's internal division by the sort of, these sort of vertebrae of mountains and, and marshes. So I guess just hanging on this one more time or one more moment before I go to my, uh, my last two questions that I, I have um, is how much of the ecology of Europe made it suited to, I, I, I guess, flourish in this type of isolated, semi-isolated environment um, and kind of, I guess really, could you just touch upon how much ecology has to also play with the geography, right? Like I think geography is one that is, is an easy construct for people to kind of wrap their heads around of mountains and, and fast moving rivers or, you know, daunting passes and, and kind of the pressure that those bring. But, you know, the ecology of a place I think is one that tends to kind of get left off and that's, you know, how easily suitable or easily manipulated is, is this land. Yes, thank you. I mean, I think the, the reason why um, people in these two, I call them economic zones, you could very well call them ecological zones, the Atlantic side and Mediterranean side, Europe. The reason why people always wanted to bring those together um, is for the sake of ecological diversity. I mean, very broadly speaking, the more ecological diversity you have, um, the more you're indemnified against disaster because, you know, if you're, if you're reliant on one crop or one set of crops or, or, or if you're part of an ecosystem, um, which is, um, you know, which depends on, on, um, on a, a, a limited series of links, it only takes, you know, one blight, one disaster to knock out one of the links or to eliminate your staple crop and then you perish you know you you, you starve um and that's happened a lot you know a lot of you know cases of collapse of civilizations and states in history have fundamentally you know been the result of of uh, environmental disasters and 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 the just the fact that that the society is concerned didn't have enough diversity, didn't have enough ecological diversity to cope with environmental disaster. Uh, and uh, if you look at the really successful pre-industrial states in Europe, they were states that united the, these Atlantic e ecologies, these Atlantic conditions of the Mediterranean ones, like um, the Roman Empire. And and Spain in the late Middle Ages and early modern period, and France. Um, uh, but of course, industrialization changed that because it, and, and of course, and global trade changed that because it meant that um, no uh, European economy was, was, uh, was ever again dependent on a very limited range of, um, of products. Well, I say no European economy, obviously marginal cases, and, 
parts of Finland and Belgium and Ireland, they remained over-dependent on potatoes in the 19th century. And we all know, you know, what, what happened um, to them. But broadly speaking, I think uh, that the, the, this, the, the, the fact that states that encompass a Mediterranean and Atlantic face of privilege, in Europe, I think that wanes in the 19th century um, because of globalization, because of industrialization. Um, so, uh, so I, 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 I think if you're looking, if you, want, if you look for part of the world that's really privileged ecologically, where it was actually easy to unite different ecological zones within a single commercial and, in this case, political system, China's the place to look at. Because you know, China is a triumphant example of a really early case of the integration of two very different ecological zones, the Yellow River, which is very broadly speaking, a millet-producing area, and the Yangtze Valley, which is very broadly speaking, a rice-producing area. And the integration of these two really goes back to the second millennium BC. So, you know, that's a, that's, and that's an amazing achievement. I, I mean, I think other states at the time, um, in some cases, achieved a measure of, of ecological diversity, a contemporary state, of which that would be true with early China would be Egypt, which combined the Nile Valley and the Delta, which are very different UK systems. Um, but really in China, the critical um, advantage that the Chinese had was that they, they encompassed these two zones. So if the rice crop failed, they had millet, and if the millet crop failed, they had rice. That's been very crude, you know, but, but broadly speaking, that's, um, that's a tremendous advantage China had and helps to account for why China was such a robust and enduring state and such a, a productive and influential culture um, from, from a, a, a very early date for a very long and continuous period. That's, that's fascinating. Uh, <clears throat> I never had heard that uh, ecological diversity kind of connection there. That's, that's something I'm definitely going to mull over for, for some time. Um, that's really interesting. And I also was reading that uh, how much you've mentioned climate change as kind of a historical driver of some of this. And, and sorry, we have uh, somebody at the door. Um, what, what, and what kind of dog is that? Oh, we have a, she's a mutt. I can, I'll turn the background off. Oh, I see. Well, uh, um, no doubt she's um i'll send you a i'll send you a picture she's of her. a melange of cultural influences yes she's she's quite she's quite pretty and she knows it too i'll send you a, a photo on our follow-up thank you um, thank you you know i'm a big dog lover yeah you should send me a picture of your dog as well i'm i'm incredibly into dogs and if we ever uh if i ever get the the grace to talk with you again i can i would love to pick your brain and my idea of uh how much our culture and morality was influenced by that of dogs and wolves because I, I i'm a pretty confident that that's the case um, yeah so i'd certainly be very interested in that yeah i would love that um and and you know what let's just uh we can uh i want to be conscious of your time so is there anything else that you would like to say and then i'll, I'll stop the recording and then we can just kind of wrap from there no no in spite of the fact that i've droned on and on i obviously didn't particularly want to say anything i was just just responding to your questions awesome well thank you very much i'm going to pause the recording